Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome um, uh, to the uh, LSE. Uh, if you hadn't realised, that's where you were. Welcome uh, for this afternoon's uh, event. Tell me if I, at any moment, I'm leaning back in my chair and hoping I'm still audible. Am I still audible? Brilliant stuff. That note, everybody. Um, um, so uh, this event is, is entitled Rerum Cognoscere Causas, and, and you may, if, if you're in any way associated with LSE, recognise the piece of uh, Latin there. We're on, I believe, the last... Um, uh, afternoon. Let's 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 hope the climactic afternoon uh, of LSE's seventh seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival, been taking place throughout the week, as I'm sure uh, you're uh, aware. Its theme uh, has been uh, foundations, and this afternoon we're going to be exploring the classical foundations of Western literature and thought, and uh, reflecting on the continuing value and re- relevance of the Greco-Roman uh, classics. Um, my name is uh, Llewellyn Morgan and I teach classics at uh, Oxford University, but rather more importantly, I'm delighted to uh, be able to introduce our distinguished, distinguished panel uh, today. And I'm moving um, uh, uh, along this line, naturally. So, starting to my left, um, Barbara Graziosi is Professor of Classics and Director for Arts and Humanities at the Institute of Advanced Studies at Durham University. Uh, Her speciality is Greek literature, though her research ranges widely across the cultures of the ancient world. Um, And her special interest, it seems to me at any rate, uh, pursued in books like Inventing Homer and After Homer, The Resonance of Epic, her special interest is in the ways Greek culture has been rediscovered and reinvented in antiquity and, uh, and beyond um, antiquity. I should add that Barbara uh, has won particular praise uh, during her career for her success in promoting the study of classics in the wider uh, community. Uh, her most recent book uh, that she's holding in her hands um, is The Gods of Olympus, a history, and she'll be giving, a, a, I believe, a taste, a taste of that uh, today. Edith Hall is a uh, professor of classics at at King's College London and also a consultant director of the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama at Oxford. She's a prolific and brilliant critic of Greek literature and its influence. She's published more than 40 books, no, 20 books, (laughs) I wouldn't wouldn't be at all surprised. um, And and for um, one of her uh, recent books, Adventures with uh, Iphigenia in Tauris, uh, she was recently awarded the Goodwin Award of Merit by the American <laughs> by the American Classical Society, um, and that came close on uh, the heels of the Erasmus Medal awarded by the European Academy for her outstanding contribution to international scholarship. She is regularly on uh, radio and TV too. Indeed, if I may be forgiven for coining a neo-Erasmian phrase, she's a woman for all seasons. Um, her most recent book is Introducing the Ancient Greeks. That's another cue, potentially. Introducing the Ancient uh, <laughs> Greeks um, from Bronze Age uh, seafarers to navigators of the Western mind. And today she'll be talking about comedy and the politics of laughter. So Peter Stoddart is the editor of the Times Literary Supplement, formerly editor of the Times. He's the author of two recent books uh, in particular, On the Spartacus Road and Alexandria, The Last Nights of Cleopatra, which both rather defy categorisation. They're travel writing, historiography, memoir, journal, in any case, wonderfully discursive meditations on the personal um, refracted through an intensely classical um, sensibility. Uh, As it happens, Alexandria is the only work of literature in which I've managed to feature personally, although absolutely anonymously. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. Um, and, um, Are you going to read that? <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten that one. <laughs> 
and it will be Alexandria that uh, that Peter is talking That's about uh, to today. Um, uh, last but not least, Tom Holland is the spectacularly erudite author of a series of historical bestsellers, Rubicon, Persian Fire, Millennium in the Shadow of the Sword, uh, the sequel to Rubicon, which I believe is going to be called Dynasty, is that uh, yep, correct? Dynasty. Um, Dynasty. Uh, Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> that will sell. Um, will uh, we'll be out in, uh, in September. Um, he makes regular appearances on TV, radio and other media, including as a presenter of uh, Making History on Radio 4. Last year he published to uh, great acclaim a new translation of Horace's histories for Penguin Classics. Uh, and he'll be discussing attitudes to the classical heritage among both uh, medieval and modern writers in the West, I believe. Now, just a sketch proceedings before we get properly um, started. I'm going to ask each of our panellists to speak for around about ten minutes on our topic today. After that, we'll try and tie things together on stage uh, for a while, if we have time, before I uh, turn things over to the most important people in the room and uh, ask for questions for you in the audience. We'll be finishing at 2.30. There will be book signing uh, after the event with copies of all our speakers' books for sale outside. Um, uh, And finally, before we get uh, properly started, a couple of reminders. For those Twitter users in the audience, this is obviously terrifically important, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE LitFest. If you could all of you put any phones you have on silent so as not to disrupt uh, the event, that would be lovely. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. If that also is likely to have any impact upon you, there you go. That's something to bear in mind. Barbara, would you like to um, start off um, uh, on your ten minutes telling us? That's right. I'm delighted I'm starting off because then I can relax and listen to, to, <laughs> to other things uh, that are going to be more interesting, I think. But uh, I'll, I had a, two images. I'm, I'm hoping that we can look at them. And now what? That's four. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Um, so um, the question that I had in my mind when I started working on this book, which took a, a very long time to write, I'm ashamed to say, uh, was too big, probably. It, it went something like, how did the gods of ancient Greece survive um, the demise of pa- pagan religion? Um, through what roots did they continue to inhabit the human imagination? What were they, uh, or what did they become when they were no longer considered gods? And um, how do they inhabit the world today? What do they enable? Where do they feature? These were the questions that I wanted an answer to. And they were big questions, and I did my best to try and and, and put some answers in here. Um, And today, in 10 minutes, I'm certainly not going to be able to... uh, answer exhaustively, but I thought I'd make um, three points, three inroads into um, possible answers, and perhaps then we can discuss it further or see how my concerns uh, intersect with those of the other panellists, because I'm sure they will, uh, given the introductions that we've heard. So the first thing I wanted to say, really, is that speculation about the nature of the gods was very vibrant, free, and insistent, also in antiquity, And that for this reason, when the Christians and the Muslims started thinking, well, what are these gods of Olympus? How can we fit them into a worldview given that they're certainly not gods? They had a wealth of material from antiquity that had already been speculating about the nature of the gods. And as I was writing this, uh, an anecdote that kept 
me company uh, in, in my pursuit was that of the poet Simonides who went to Sicily and the tyrant of Sicily said to him, now Simonides, you're a poet, you're a wise uh, uh, person, tell me just this, what is a god? And Simonides said to the tyrant, give me a day to think about it. So he, he went back to the tyrant a day later and he said, give me two days to think about it. And the tyrant said, all right, two days then. And then he went back after two days and he said, give me four days. And so the tyrant, exasperated, asked, asked him what in the world he thought he was doing, not giving an answer. And he said, well, the longer I think about it, the more obscure the subject seems to me. And that's precisely the way I was feeling about the book uh, only a, a few months in. And then I ended up, indeed, uh, having to ask my publisher for another year and, month <laughs> and, and so on. And, and they were very uh, generous and patient with me. But my second point is that it's no coincidence that it was a poet that was asked, what is a god? Because the first authorities on the gods were indeed the poets. And as Herodotus said, and you might <laughs> tell us more about that later, um, Homer and Hesiod, uh, according to the historian Herodotus, were the first who revealed to the Greeks what the gods were like, uh, what their names were, what their um, um, appearance was and what the areas of influence and expertise were. Uh, and this is true. Homer and Hesiod had enormous influence in establishing a pantheon for the Greeks. But as soon as they said something about the gods, they were criticized for it and quite uh, extensively and systematically. So the very first author that mentions Homer by name does so in order to say he was all wrong about the gods uh, he ascribed to the gods all the things that are bad in human beings and actually uh, the real divine is nothing like what we think and nothing like us. Uh, and 600 miles away in the 6th century BCE, and that's a, a strange t thing to imagine, Xenophanes was right, um, active in what is now Turkey and then in southern Italy, we seem to have a reply to this attack on the gods, whereby someone called Theagenes said, oh, the gods in Homer and Hesiod, they're wrapped up in this nice and entertaining stories, but actually there's a deeper meaning to them. And we have to, basically, we have to allegorize in order to understand what they really are. And it is really surprising that you could have this kind of dialogue across so many miles in a time where travel was not easy. So we have to imagine not that they were sending texts uh, or communicating in some speedy way, but rather that there was a very widespread debate about the gods in the poems of Homer, and the poems of Homer, of course, were spreading at that time, and together with them went controversy about the gods. This line of defense, the gods are allegorical, proved to be incredibly influential and in a way is alive and well today. Oh, really, Athena's wisdom, oh, we have to think about it that way, is very much still uh, an, an influential way of thinking about the gods. Um, but also what these early critics established was a way of attacking uh, views about religion which focused on what the poets said about the gods. So when Plato... Uh, mounted a wholesale uh, rejection of traditional polytheism, what did he do? He didn't talk about cults. He didn't talk about what people did in temples. No. He went for the jugular in trying to kill Homer and Hesiod, saying their poems should not be in the city. And when Aristotle tried to defend uh, the poems, he said, look, 
what the poets say about the the gods is not really credible, and that's a fault. But on the other hand, it's excusable if it produces the effect of poetry, the purpose of poetry. And the purpose of poetry is, well, he gave various definitions, but one important one is ekplexis, which is something like the thrill of shock or, you know, impact, emotional impact. And so if you achieve that through an incredible description of a god in poetry, that's all right because it does what poetry should do. So my contention in this book is that arguments about what literature is, what it can do, were originally and still are in many ways bound with this issue of what you do with the gods if you don't accept them at face value and it's <coughs> impossible really for anyone to accept them, even in antiquity it, it, it was an issue. Um, so later on in the book, I talk about um, what the Christians tried to do with these gods, and they very much take their cue from Aristotle, uh, from Plato, and from Aristotle. And they talk about, well, they they think about it metaphorically, but then they think, well, if the gods are metaphors, these are pretty wild metaphors, and they start having some kind of admiration for them. So there is an increasing way of thinking about the human imagination that is linked to these figures. So how could the ancients see rain falling and think, oh, this is sex between Jupiter and Ceres? You know, this is, the, you know, medieval scholars were thinking about this and thinking that's not just license, this is licentious. And it has, you know, we have a lively human imagination in the way we read, for example, the landscape. And Lactantius, for example, talked about this and said, well, where is the line between metaphor and reality? He was thinking very hard about this, and he said, well, the point of poetry is to blur it. And the point of us good Christian readers is to insist on it, right? So you have a sense that arguments about what literature can do were very much honed in relation to these figures of the imagination. So, uh, how am I doing? I have one you're, more minute? You're at you least. Think? No, at least? Perfect. Okay, so I'll, I'll go to point two. Three uh, more minutes. Three more minutes. Okay, three well, that's plenty. This is just an image that I, that I put here almost at random. I could have picked other things. But the point I want to make is that as well as poetry, art was very important as a way of defining and thinking about the gods. But also conversely, and that's really the point I'd like to make, is that thinking about the gods became a way of thinking and defining what art can do too. And what we have here is an amazing fragment of uh, a vase from southern Italy, now in Amsterdam, as many things uh, tend to go north. Um, and what we have is a statue of Apollo in a temple, and we have the real Apollo next to it. Right? So we have a reflection here that the statue is not the god, uh, and we have, a you know, we have an artist thinking clearly about representation, but we also have an advertisement for the new kind of art because, as art historians will immediately tell you, the statue on the left is archaic. It has an archaic pose. And it's sort of a little bit like a kouros. Uh, even you can imagine the Egyptian statues, one foot in front of the other, quite rigid. And what you have on the other side, the real god, as it were, is the more fluid, 
classical style, more naturalistic style. If you look at the white paint that is used there, mm -hmm. it's meant to suggest the gleaming bronze. Um, that was a convention that was used. Here we have no sense of that. We have a sense of the real God. Mm -hmm. But of course you can imagine the real God looking at the vase, right? Or me being next to the vase. So you can't ever quite get there with divinity. But you can have a story of progress in art. And progress in art in this context is about ever more naturalistic ways of thinking about the human and the human body and the movement. So what did happen then with ancient art? Uh, well, it wasn't as good as for literature because objects, although you can treat them as metaphors, they have a way of being there, right? Of being really present and you want to do things to them. Uh, everybody wants to touch in museums, but th there's more, right, that you can do to statues and particularly of statues of idols. And the, um, the Statue of Antiquity did not fare at all well. Uh, we have already um, in, you know, in the early uh, Christian century, 402 uh, e, um, AD, Bishop Porphyry confronted a statue of Venus um, accompanied by a crowd of Christians bearing the cross. And we are told the demon lived in this beautiful statue. And the demon couldn't cope with the sign of the cross, and so the statue just fragmented as they arrived. Now, I don't think this was quite spontaneous, uh, the wreckage, but you can see what was happening uh, then. The interesting thing, though, is that some statues survived, partly because pagans hid them in wells, and archaeologists can tell us that, so they, they were careful to put them out of harm's way, and they were later found. But also those that did survive, as they deteriorated, the demons inside the statues started to become a bit more um, benign, you know, in character. So that we have later medieval stories that say, particularly of statues of Athena, that they were good protection against minor calamities like rats and heat waves and what have you. And uh, we see similar transformations, for example, with the tomb of Virgil, where Virgil was a, thought to be a pagan magician, but then... You know, around Naples, they started thinking, well, oh, maybe he's, he, this pagan, pagan magic has its uses. And that's very much how the statues of antiquity started to get transformed in later centuries when they were then rediscovered again as numinous expressions of human capability for representation as they then were read in the Renaissance. Anyway, this is all very uh, sketchy, but I have one more image. Yes, okay. So this is actually a Greek god. It doesn't look like one. I, can, I have very good arguments why this is a Greek god, completely sound and uncontroversial. The explanation um, is for later. I have a question. You know how you have supposed to plant questions, but I have a question for you. Which god is it? And then we can maybe talk about it later in discussion, if you like. Thank you. I think that was plenty. Yeah. Fascinating, 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 and, and, and clearly uh, evidence of, of what, how much more there is in the book. But um, we must crack on. So, um, Edith, would you like to um, start your... 10 or 12 minutes. 10 or 12 minutes. Okay. Hello. Very nice to um, see you all. I don't know when you last uh, went to see a comedy at the movies or laughed over a political cartoon or watched 
a sitcom or bought a copy of Private Eye or any of those things. But actually, none of those things could you have done without the ancient Greeks and Romans. I'm a great one for looking at just how much the ancient Greeks and Romans owed to other ancient Near Eastern cultures, and they owned an enormous amount, but one of the very few things that they really seem absolutely to have figured out for themselves is formal, institutionalised, recognisable genres of uh, literature and art that were designed to make you laugh. Okay, I do think that there are, of course, ancient Mesopotamians laughed. Of course, ancient Egyptians laughed. It's very hard to find an ancient Egyptian or Mesopotamian or Persian uh, genre of literature which you just got because you wanted a good time and to have a jolly good laugh. And this is one of the most distinctive features of ancient literature, and it has had a massive impact every time anybody, certainly since the Renaissance, has wanted to... uh, create a funny kind of entertainment or make a a, a sardonic political point, then they are certainly not only in the tradition of ancient literature and maybe unconsciously imitating some that they already know about, whether it's Aristophanes or or rude poems by Catullus or some of the more witty and charming and very, very amusing parts of Ovid's Metamorphoses, but they are very likely, actually, consciously to go with them. And I always want to talk about Henry Fielding when I'm in this particular parts of London, around Lincoln's Inn Fields, because our own licensing act, which was brought in in 1737, to allow the government to censor theatre, right, which carried on all the way to the 1960s and the scandals surrounding Hare and and D.H. Lawrence and Lady Chatterley's lover and so on. That very licensing act was brought in to stop Henry Fielding poking fun at the first Prime Minister of Britain, Walpole. And Henry Fielding got all of his jokes out of Aristophanes. He translated Aristophanes' Plutus. He was constantly reading Aristophanes and Aristophanes' greatest lover in antiquity, who was Lucian. And he made fun of Walpole, and Walpole saw that it was far too serious and people were paying an awful lot of money to go and listen to these hysterically funny political attacks on him. So he brought in the Licensing Act, which meant he had to read everything that went on at the licensed theatres in Britain forever. And I think that's very interesting, and I will return to the political importance of institutionalised comedy and why, as in the case of Charlie Hebdo, we've seen just how important it is to keep that spirit alive, that we can laugh at absolutely anything. Um, That is, to me, one of the greatest gifts that antiquity has given us. I only spend one chapter on it, actually, um, in my book, but um, I may write another one one day. (laughs) So... Okay, and just the words, let's think the word comedy, comedy, comodia, to comodia is to sing in a comos, which is a procession that goes around villages uh, for the god Dionysus, who's the drunk god, getting drunk and being very insulting indeed about anybody who's getting too big for their boots. And that's what comodia means, okay? It's actually got the insult and the abuse and the irreverence, the spirit of private eye and worse, (laughs) built right into it, exactly. Uh, The word scurrilous comes from the Roman uh, summed-up comedian, the scurra, it's a particular figure with a particular name. The word satire comes from a a complicated joint history of the Roman word for satire, which seems to be very old, indigenous Italian genre, but also gets very complicated very early, its relationship with the satyrs, the hairy goat 
barefooted sailors with satyrs with big iffy phalluses who dance around at festivals being sort of ribald. So it's got not only uh, the satire against people or the, or the idea of ranting against something, but also the idea of the great ithyphallic uh, ribald thing built into it. Uh, many, many other words. Our irony, philosophical aeronia is making witty points in philosophy in order to get at the truth. And, of course, I mustn't forget scatology, <laughs> which is basically the, you know, the, the study of, of, of things that get, you know, with bathroom humour, toilet humour. And I just wanted to remind us all that tomorrow is Marshall's birthday, the greatest <laughs> poet of obscene comic poems, which attacks people by talking about their habits in the toilet, their depilation habits, their, their uh, uh, taste for very large anuses, that kind of thing. Marshall. And every time in history people have wanted to find a hero of obscenity when they've had any kind of repressive culture in terms of sexual frankness. They go straight to Marshall and, and Catullus. But Marshall, because it's his birthday tomorrow, the 1st of March, um, AD 40, I, I think it's very important. I'm particularly fond of um, Marshall at the moment because I've been reading a book about an 18th century uh, pornography club in the East Nuke of Fife, where all these Calvinists, <laughs> when they weren't going to the Wee Free or wherever, were popping into the local club together, these blokes, and masturbating as far as they could to hit the wall to the sound of Marshall. Okay, and they were called the Beggar's Benison. It's a very long story, but I find the most important reception of Marshall I've ever discovered in 18th century masturbation clubs. <laughs> Philosophy. My favourite figure in antiquity, however, has always been Diogenes, who lived in his barrel, invented cynical humour. Now, the relationship of cynical humour with dogs is much discussed. It could just be that he's brought up uh, that, that, that people who invented it, the cynic philosophers, hung out in a part of Athens, which was known as the White Dog's Place. It could just be that. But I don't think so. I think the sort of grinning, tongue out, I have a dog, you know, <laughs> the dog sort of barking, laughing sort of image gets very, very involved with cynic humour very on. And he, of course, subverted. He lived in his barrel and he, he, he said that animals were superior to humans. And he thought that Plato was a pretentious twat. And he heard that, pretend, that Plato was defining homo sapiens in the academy as a featherless biped... Yes, a biped without feathers, so like a chicken without feathers. So Diogenes, in the nude, of course, as ever, took a plucked chicken into the academy and said, Yasu Platona, hello Plato, behold a man. I just love that. <laughs> in Sparta, they worship gallows. The only place we know, apart from a, a place in Thessaly, which had a festival of laughter... Sorry, I've just seen one of my students. <laughs> uh, they worship the god Gellows, which is masculine god for laughter. Now, Sparta, we always think of the Spartans as completely grim, right? But in fact, they needed to cultivate and worship um, Lycurgus, the founder of the Spartan constitution, founded the Temple of Gellows because they had to learn how to crack jokes in the face of death. It's crucial. And that you may have seen 300, and you'll have got a little bit of an idea about this sort of sargonic Scottish sort of thing that Gerard Butler did when he just said, Oh, hi, the new, we're off today, and it's a bit funny, you know, and they would do that, and they would say, Hey, well, we'll fight in the shade. There's all these sort of cracks, and women saying to their sons, Ha ha ha, come back with it or on it, you know. But there were whole collections <laughs> of Spartan sayings, and in fact, they are, uh, Natalie Haynes has told me, who's a stand up comedian, that she learnt from reading the sayings of ancient Spartans. Um, Philip of Macedon also used to go around getting these hilarious joke collections in. Okay, so why is 
All right. Why is comedy so crucial in a democracy? Well, I want to plunge you straight in to the... Um, well, I can argue with Barbara about dates on Homer and Hesiod, but one of the very oldest poems we've got, the Iliad Book Two. And this is an incredible power struggle that is going on because the Greeks have been at Troy for a very long time and some of the lower class of people are getting mutinous, right? So what does the leader of the lower class guys, you know, some people have called him the first sort of trade unionist in history, <laughs> uh, do? But he says uh, he starts to make fun of King Agamemnon and make fun of. He tries to use mockery in his political speech to get everybody on side of him so they will all leave Troy and go home. But it's humour he tries to use. But he gets... There's an incredibly tense moment because there's Odysseus, the, uh, t- the, who's the leader of the top brass, the leader of the, the, the conservative uh, uh, whip, right? The conservative, the Tory whip, actually manages to win the laughter competition. And Thersites gets bumped on the head very, very symbolically by a scepter, which is the symbol of hereditary kingship. But for just a tense moment, if you actually perform that, I make my, my students perform that scene, it looks as though Thersites is going to win the laugh, right? And they still use laughter in, in the House of, of Commons, as we, we, we know all too well, though it's not very funny. And <laughs> the Athenians instituted comic drama competitions at exactly the same time as they instituted their democracy. We also hear that another village, another township called Megara, brought in comedy when it introduced democracy because it is a formal, formal, accepted, institutionalised form of accountability of your magistrates. It's as simple as that. If you've decided that you're going to be a strategos, a general, or some kind of minister in the Athenian democratic government, then you have absolutely got to be subjected to the best that the comic poets can throw at you. And that's got to happen annually at some festivals, okay? And it's really, really, really important. You could survive it. And one of the most famous comedies we've got by Aristophanes, where he really goes for the juggler, is on his bête noire, who was Cleon, who was leader of the, the, the Democratic Party. And he really goes for the juggler in a play called The Knights. He does everything to ridicule him. He says he's corrupt, he takes bribes, he behaves like HSBC, he behaves like Malcolm Rifkin, he behaves like... He does absolutely everything wrong and shouts all the time. And this play is brilliant. But do you know what? Not only was Cleon actually in the audience... But he no. got elected general again three months later. So he survived trial by comedy. And that's what I want our politicians to do. And co- the comic choruses were funded by rich citizens. So I want people who, you know, the bosses of HSBC to be forced now to pay what was called a liturgy, fund comedy in which our very, very, very best, most sardonic and bitterest satirists are paid by the bosses of HSBC to flog David Cameron with sausages, which is what happens in the night. Right, we need this again. We absolutely need it again. I'm just going to finish with Herodias and Caracalla because there's a very sad flip and you can tell how healthy a democracy of, or, or any society is by the strength of its comedy. I absolutely believe that. That's the first thing I ask. No, the first thing I ask is how badly is the poorest citizen treated and how are the prisoners treated? That's the first question. The second is how healthy is the laughter culture? And it's absolutely sure fire. Um, most of the constitutions in antiquity were not the Athenian democracy. And the first thing that really occurred to me the day, day of the Charlie Hebdo incident was Herodian, is a, a Greek historian's account of what happened when the emperor Caracalla 
got very angry by when the comics of Alexandria were making fun of him. The comics of Alexandria, we are told by, by Herodian, this is evident that he may actually have been an Egyptian Greek himself. He says the Egyptian Greeks have always been particularly talented at making funny of those at the top of the tree. They're very, very good at, at cutting people down the side. So Caracalla is really misbehaving. He's a thug from, from France, and he wears a hoodie. That's why he's called Caracalla, which is what hoodie means. And Caracalla kills his brother, is too influenced by his very old and domineering mother has all sorts of horrible taxes, goes around just being a generally absolutely horrible Roman emperor, and, 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 and this is your name for Roman emperors. And so he hears that the Egyptians are putting on plays where they have him as Oedipus, who slept with his older mother. And because he was very, very small and had short man's disease about, you know, sort of Napoleon complex... He, um, uh, they had him as the tallest heroes they knew, like getting up on stilts on their comic theatre, like Achilles and Alexander the Great, and they absolutely took the mickey out of him, putting on all these sort of burlesque tragedies about the emperor. So what does he do? He gets his big army together, marches to Egypt, summons all the young men of the city, 5,000 of them, and murders all of them and the Nile around with blood. That is what you do if you're worried about uh, democratic people expressing their uh, horror and that was the first thing that came into my head was Caracalla with, with the Char- Char- Charlie Hebdo. <laughs> you know, we're talking about... Um, I actually don't... I always think that the people who hold the reins of, pa- of power in a good society also are the ones in control of the humour, right? The minute it, uh, an emperor or a tyrant gets in, they decide what's going to be allowed to be said that's funny. Right, and that is the true measure of it. And there's some really shocking things going on right now in Russia, apparently, in terms of closure of satirical magazines and so on. So that's it. Thanks. Just, I mean, co- connecting antiquity and, and, and the present just fabulously there. Need, needless to say, um, Peter, would you like to uh, seize the microphone? I just wonder what my life would have been like if I'd been uh, taught as a child by um, people like Barbara and, uh, and Edith, because I'm sitting here from really quite a different um, perspective from the, from the one that, that they are. I spent most of my life as a, as a journalist and a writer on politics, nothing to do with classics at all. For a large part of my life, although I was trying to keep up with the classics, which I had learnt when I was extremely young, um, was you know really working against the odds. It's not, it's not many times, not much time you got when you're editor of the Times to sort of be reading your uh, reading your Virgil. Although I was did try quite hard to do it for some strange reason. I thought it was important for me to keep this classical idea my of part of my life alive, and the and the survival and of the classics within myself came as a real shock to me later on in li- later on in life and, and when i listen, when i sort of have a conversation like this as to why the classics survived in in the world well we can you know there're lots of good academic arguments you can make about that but one of the things that you can do particularly if you're late in life and you don't nobody cares is to work out why how it survived within your within yourself and why so many of the other things that you do when you're a child um, do not survive. Why do I, as a, as a 
child on a kind of basically as an Essex council estate back in the in the fifties. Why do I remember in such? Why did it turn out? Though I didn't know for a long time this was the case, <coughs> that I remembered in some considerable detail in some particularly peculiar ways what I'd read in Greek and Latin <coughs> as a as a as a teenager when I didn't remember <coughs> and had no recollection with no use to me so much else that I'd learned. And I, and I discovered that in a very peculiar way. Um, I mean, I, I don't want just to talk about this, but, it, but it, I just say this was where I'm, I'm coming from. I didn't expect to find these survivals. I had a rather nasty one of those experiences I'm sure quite a few people had here when they tell you that you're going to die, you know, you have cancer, and they say you haven't got very long to live, and it's not very great, and, you, <coughs> and I um, went back straight to work, and somebody said, did it make any difference to you, the fact that they told you you were going to die? And I said, no, absolutely not. I'm going to win at the time. I said, I'm going to do my own life. Several years later, long after I'd sort of left the Times, I was travelling in Italy on a totally different project uh, this, for this book called The Spartacus Road, talking about books which would only have existed if what well, I'm going to tell you ha- happened. And suddenly I realised a combination of uh, having a huge amount of what I'd learned as a child just came pouring mm. back to me. And there's something about the durability of the classics within individuals, which may say something, uh, beyond my, way beyond my scholastic ability to know, but may say something about why it survives amongst large numbers of people. Um, one of them possibly is the fact that when you're a child and you're reading Latin and Greek, and in those days, there was not much else to read. There were hardly any books in my house. And so, you know, there was a high degree of focus on, on a single thing. So this stuff sort of... And, and, and maybe there are other reasons too, but when it came... When I needed it, or whether, when it was useful, it came powering back. And, it, and these books, both those books that I've written, are basically stories about the return of, of classics from my own well, personal wellspring, if you like, and... And which gets me to think as to why, you know, what is the strength of whether it's the Greek gods or, 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 or the invention of laughter? What is it? These are very potent things that began at the time that we are, we are all interested in that survive and also should remember sometimes don't survive, um, but the ones that survive are the ones we're talking about um, in, in very different um, ways. And I suppose when I, when I saw the, the um, subject of this. Debate. There was just one particular uh, survival that, um, uh, that that struck me, which is the since we were doing rerum cognoscere causas, you can never dare say Latin when Louis around. Louis is the most beautiful Latin speaker in the world. But you, uh, that. Um, I do only to understand the cause of things. The beginning of that, the, the, the line that this comes, uh, we might as well, maybe you will know, but it was, this is from Virgil's Georgics, and, it, and Virgil is saying, he begins it, happy is the man, fortunate and felix qui potuit, understand the causes of things. And he's referring to a particular man. Uh, Lucretius, who, if, if there was to be any Latin, Roman who was the sort of patron saint of the LSE, I would have thought Lucretius would have, would have a very, very good <laughs> course. He was someone who 
who believed, he took on the, the thought of the, of the Greek Epicurus, that, that, that you could explain that understanding the causes of things in a scientific way was something you could do, and if you did it, you would be, you, you would, you would be happy. Mm. But, but, the next slide. But Virgil, <laughs> but there, exactly. But, then Virg, but the next slide is the one which isn't in your slogan, uh, but might be if you were a different kind of university, a different kind of university. Fortunatus et ille. Uh, fortunate is the man who knows about the country gods, about Pan, about the, um, the, the spirits of, of, of art, and, mm. and this contrast a is one yeah. of the, the is one of the great wellsprings that have come from us in the classics between between the, these two ways of looking at the world, Lucretius versus the rest for actually a lot of a lot of, a lot of time, but it was also used. I remember when I was at school uh, when there was a sort of battle as to who they could get to do classics. And they, people used to argue as to whether or not, you know, it was a good idea. You know, if you wanted a boy to do classics, you, you would, you know, you try and sell, sell the, 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 the idea of it. And so this, this, this contrast between the scientists who wanted to understand the causes of things and the humanitarians, humanities people who said, well, that science is all very well in its place, but actually there are a lot more things you can under- understand than that, was, uh, came absolutely as well. I thought, oh, we're going to talk about this. And, there, and absolutely there it was. Because, and this is then, this is my last, my last really just point on, those gods that Barbara um, were talking about, although she made them sound, they were kind of cultural sort of artefacts, the fact is that People were very, very frightened of them, yeah. uh, and um, whatever they were. And Lucretius, uh, Epicurus, and Lucretius in his stand, believed that if you could get rid of the fear of those gods, basically turn them into cultural artifacts and things that people could talk about in paintings, and stop being afraid of them, all the rest of your problems would go. If you could get rid of the fear of death, the rest of your life would be happy. Now, I have to say, when I was a 14-year-old, that, that meant I'd say nothing <laughs> to me whatsoever. And one of the po- again, the points about the classics is that when we can read it clearly, well, when we're young, I could read Latin and Greek quite fluently when I was 18, but it tends to be, believe me, at least it was sort of downhill, downhill after that. I didn't understand it, but I could read it. Now I can understand it, but I don't read, I don't read it quite so well. I don't read it quite so well. And so the, the Arguments of Epicurus are put by Lucretius about what you can get from your life by avoiding the fear of death have only ca- only came to me after I had faced a very acute relationship with death. So everything uh, about uh, so I, I uh, there were many wellsprings of, of, of in, into the, into our culture from classics, but that distinction between Lucretius and, and Virgil is an extremely important one, and my memory of how I see that. Di- clash to now, compared to as I saw it then, is the most important and surviving uh, wellspring of the classics into my life. Thank you very much indeed. Thoughts and questions I think are, are coming up from you know, here and uh, in the audience already, but let's give uh, Tom his uh, chance to contribute and then we can have that proper uh, discussion that uh, is coming. I, I think that... Um, Implicit in, in the idea of, well, the question of what the um, relationship between classical literature and modern literature is, is the sense that there is a gap between the two, that there has been a rupture. And I think that that's been evident in everything 
that we've heard, whether it's Barbara talking about how the Greek gods survived into a Christian era, or Edith talking about the mirror that um, Greek and Roman comedy holds up to the present, or Peter talking about the way that um, shore fragments against ruin. Um, so I want to take um, three vignettes from the period where I think in Western history that people in the Latin West became aware of this rupture, became aware of the fact that they were separated by an enormous cultural chasm from the world of, of, of the Roman past in particular. Um, and that's the, the 10th century leading up to the millennium. Um, and I think it's, it's the awareness of the approach of the year 1000, the, the millennial anniversary of the birth of Christ, that concentrated people's minds and made them realise how, how far they had come from the world of the classical past. So three vignettes. The first is um, a rhetorician in the city of Ravenna by the name of Vilgard. And he, we are told... Um, was deeply learned in the art of grammar, and his study of it was ceaseless, not just frequent. Um, so, a bit like Peter in, uh, in Essex. Um, and unlike Peter, he ended up ferociously puffed up with pride, which obviously made him easy prey for demons. And these demons appeared to Vilgard in the form of Virgil, Horace, and Juvenal. And they told him that if he worshipped the poets, then they would offer him a share of their immortal glory and fame. And Vilgard succumbed to this temptation, and we are told by the historian of the time that he began arrogantly to preach against the holy faiths at Christianity, asserting that the sayings of the poets should be believed in everything. So what Plato would have made of that, I'm sure he'd have been appalled as well. Um, and the Bishop of Ravenna, of course, not very pleased about this, um, uh, condemns Vilgard as a heretic. We don't know what happened to him, um, but we do know that his teachings continue to be widely circulated. Um, and the thing that's interesting about Vilgard is that he is in Ravenna, which is probably the city where um, it's likeliest that a continuous tradition of classical scholarship would have continued, because Ravenna was the capital of um, the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and that even after it got conquered by the Franks, it remained an absolute centre of, of, of classical scholarship. So it's possible that there was no need for any kind of a renaissance in Ravenna, that um, the heritage of classical literature was a living thing, and that this is what Vilgard was the recipient of. But then if we move north, um, over the Alps, to Burgundy, uh, the great abbey of Cluny, which in the 10th and 11th centuries became this sort of glimmering powerhouse of Christian culture, where the monks devoted themselves to singing psalms all day, trying to uh, evoke on earth the beauty of the celestial choirs of heaven, that did not give them time to study classical poetry. Um, and we know that the abbots regarded the classical poets um, not just as something to be ignored, but as to, to, to be actively opposed. One abbot, Maelus, um, is recorded by his biographer in glowing terms as someone who had never read a single word of the classical poets. And this is regarded as, as, as an absolute positive. Um, <laughs> another abbot, Ode, has an extraordinary dream um, in which, um, a bit like Vilgard, he imagines that he meets Virgil. But the outcome is very different because far from being suborned by Virgil, Ode raises the sign of the cross 
And at this point, the Aeneid, which Virgil has been trying to foist on Odo, is transformed into a vase full of writhing serpents. Is <laughs> there so anyone out there struggling with their Virgil at GCSE? <laughs> a vase of writhing serpents. Then we go further north, even, uh, f- even further north to, to Saxony at the end of the 10th century, to the um, Abbey of Corvey. Um, and there's a monk there called Vidikind who is writing an enormous history of his own people, the Saxons, an incredibly useful source of information um, for that period. But the thing that's particularly fascinating about it is that Vidikind reports um, that it is commonly held, he says, among the Saxons, that um, they're the descendants of the army of Alexander the Great. And Vidikind is, is, is honest enough to say that he's not entirely convinced by this. <laughs> But he likes the idea of it. So there we have three responses, really, at the beginning, I think, of the modern West to the classical heritage. Um, and it's pretty easy to see where these lead. Um, Vilgard, the guy who is seduced by um, the three classical poets who appear to him, is obviously representative of that tradition in Western literature, which looks back to classical models as one very actively to be emulated. Um, It's one that gets turbocharged in the 14th, 15th centuries, the period we call the Renaissance, um, with the rediscovery, really, of of, of classical humanism. Um, It's incredibly telling that the second volume that that, um, Gutenberg's printing press produces after the Bible is a copy of... um, Cicero's Guide to Being a Gentleman, De Officius. Um, we're talking about the influence of, um, of, of Greek drama in France in the 17th century. It's, it's, it's very intense. Um, the great French tragedians uh, consciously try and model themselves on what they regard as the, sort of the Aristotelian ideal and regard Shakespeare with contempt for breaking the three unities. Um, and this culminates in, in a famous debate, the Battle of the, the Ancients and the Moderns, which Swift wonderfully represents as a sort of battle between rival armies of books on the slopes of Mount Parnassus. Because, of course, um, if, we have, if we have the Vilgar tradition, the tradition of people looking back to classical antiquity, we also have this very strong tradition of people actively rejecting it. And initially this is done for Christian reasons, but then... We think of the 18th century, it's described um, by literary historians as the Augustan age, looking back to the models of, of, um, of Roman literature, even these masturbating Scots <laughs> copying Marshall. Maybe it's not surprising, bearing that in mind, that in the Romantic period, um, the idea that looking back to dead, antiquated models mm. is grotesquely inappropriate to what the artist should be doing. Instead, we should be looking to nature, we should be looking into our own hearts. Um, and it's incredibly powerfully expressed by Blake, um, who, in his, his writing about, uh, on Homer's poetry, he's writing about the Iliad, he says that the classics, it is the classics, and not Goths nor monks that desolate Europe with wars. Mm. And he sees this obsession with Greek and Roman culture as breeding a form of militarism. And he sees what he calls the mathematic form of the Greek worldview as being sterile. And he contrasts it, as you could see in that saying, with 
the living form that is eternal existence, which he sees as being embodied in Gothic. Um, and I think that what's fascinating, of course, is that although we, we want to cast these as rival poles, actually in the greatest, some of the greatest European literature, these two reactions to the classical heritage are fighting within the head of the poet. And it's most obvious, of course, as, again, no one better to, to talk about, that, that Virgil is influenced by Homer. But, of course, Dante is then influenced by Virgil. But Virgil cannot get to paradise. Virgil can only take Dante so far, <coughs> taken through Inferno, but has to stop in midway through the purgatory. And then, of course, Milton, again influenced by Dante. Um, Milton, great Christian poet, consciously, both in Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, turning his back on the temptations of classical culture. But he is incredibly literate in the classics. He's Cromwell's Latin secretary. He writes a mask called Comus. So there is that tension within the greatest poets in the European tradition, but I think generally all the way through, and it's that that makes it Western culture so fascinating. And when you look at the example of Widukind with his, you know, this idea that, that the, the Saxons were, were somehow um, Macedonians, actually, I think that that is the most distinctive response, yeah. which, which is ultimately you just grab bits of the classical heritage that suit you and garb them in extraordinarily new clothes. Yeah. And it's that, I think, that, that will enable classical literature and history to continue to influence the present, even though we now live in an age uniquely where classical influences are not widely known, are not widely taught. And the reason for that is that if we look even at the most popular forms of literature, we see that they have an abiding fascination, even for those who may not know what they're being given. So if you look at The Hunger Games, one of the most popular um, young adult novels adapted into a film, that is drawing very, very clearly on motifs from Greek and Roman culture, from the idea, the legend of the Minotaur people being sent to, um, as a tribute, uh, the Colosseum. And it's absolutely apparent that that's what's been going on, because there are names dropped into the text. You've got a Seneca, you've got all ki kinds of Plutarch. people there. Yeah, you've got yeah, Plutarch. Um, and that, so that's why I am full of hope that even though people may not be studying Greek and Latin to the same degree that they have done over the past thousand years, nevertheless, we will continue as a culture to be very, very powerfully influenced by this extraordinarily rich legacy that the Greeks and the Romans have left us. Splendid. Thank you very much. Well, for whoops, for um, splendid. I mean, wonderfully uh, rich uh, little um, talks uh, there, and 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 to cap it all, they've pretty much kept time as well. <laughs> Only pretty much, but as much as I could expect. Um, now, I will um, as, as quickly as as, uh, as I can throw this uh, open to the um, uh, to, to you to ask questions for. But there've been. I think probably panelists also have questions to ask of, of uh, people. So if I give the panellists the chance first to, to start a conversation. Um, Barbara, are you still... Um, well, I, um, 
I thought of something while Peter was um, uh, speaking, and it was a poem by Safed, this very famous poem, in which he says, I woke up with this marble head in my hands. It exhausted my elbows. I didn't know where to put it down. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. And I've, I thought of this poem because of what happens to us when we learn the great classics like a bit of Virgil very early on in life. And it's so strange. I mean, it is just, mm. you know, the shock of... I remember reading bits of the lyric poets that an uncle had just thrown, oh, look at that, and, and the page was empty, and there were two or three Greek words and two or three words of translation. I thought, what is this? What, what on earth is this? And then, in a sense, the pleasure of going back is also the pleasure of measuring the dif- distance that you've traveled as an individual, mm-hmm. but it has to do with being given something substantial and unaccountable mm. to start with, yeah. which is a very, very powerful thing to happen, both to us as young individuals, but also to us as cultures. Completely right? unexamined. So, yeah. I mean, the, I mean the, the, we, yeah. we talk about Marshall, but Marshall yeah. Marshall's sort of less famous contemporary, the man called Statius. Now, Statius was not really on much on the, on the syllabus, right. nor did he really fit into many of the patterns of classics that people like, because he wrote about sort of interior design and swimming pools, and yeah. he also wrote about the absolute horrors of, warf- of, warf- of warfare, dis- disgusting and powerful, almost sort of Wilfred Owen-like descriptions of, what it, of the mud and blood of, of, of war. None of the things that you particularly... But curiously, and that was, we didn't even have to study that for an exam, and oddly, when times were tough, it was kind of statious. There was the stuff that really... With the stuff that came back, not really? the not the, not not the really? yes, not the not these not the things that you'd studied studied more. It, it, uh, it, there are so many pin, powerful pinpricks within this classical, classical heritage that to talk about how it comes out generally, it's, well, it's quite hard. But well, God, when it comes, it comes. It comes you, you know, when it comes, it comes. So isn't yeah. that because, in a way, um, in the West, we've kind of had two cracks yes. of civilization. Yes. So we've had the, the period that began with, I suppose, Mycenae up to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, and then everything since. Yeah. And so that means that at any point we can look back and we can find some correspondence to what yeah. we are yeah. going through in the world of Greece and Rome. Yeah. So that now we live in a globalised world with huge multicultural but even this megalopolises, yeah. and we can look back to the Hellenistic world or to Imperial Rome, and, and there we... F- are bound to find okay. a yeah, kind of mirror, a distorting mirror. Can I could just, could this be a bit? I mean, when I said at the beginning that I, I'd never been taught by anybody as eloquent as, 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 as Edith and Barbara, that wasn't entire. I mean, I wonder if I had been whether it would have worked out differently because we were told desperately to eschew any idea of relevance. It was it was the worst thing you could. If you ever tried to tell to any of our teachers, right up to the time I was in Oxford, of, of any kind of. Uh, this fits in with that. Yeah. You would you would have been cons- considered that would have been considered, frankly, rather polytechnic and really rather useless. And mm-hmm. but you just just stop, <laughs> just, 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 just stop doing. The, and so we're, the, everything of, um, that relates the, the, the idea of relating it to the real world it was more it was again. Okay, so what you have ended out is finding that all the things that disappear. I was interested, frankly, in the classics in the classical wellsprings that dried up. Yeah. The ones that yeah. didn't go anywhere, yeah. as as the ones that did, and not oh, I'm not always you know. So what what he says is but, absolutely but, but, true but, about comedy, but a lot of other things just 
but, 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 but the effect of that is that, that as our circumstances change, yeah. so different texts and different periods yeah, yeah. will come into a yeah. sort of renewed yeah, yeah, focus. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's also important to think about what you do, and that is in the present. So even if your teachers say, don't you dare suggest that you are like, I don't know, died or something that annoys me when people... Um, even if you don't want to draw those connections, you aren't actually engaging with this text yeah. in the present, in the doing. And I think that can be moving. I th- you know, it, it's a cliche to think, oh, the Renaissance starts with this monks fleeing from Byzantium, carrying this, these manuscripts, and, and that's when it, it starts. And it, It's a legend. It has a lot of problems attached to it. But let's just think for a second about this. These monks taking with them texts of Homer, you know, a pagan poet. What were they doing? What did they think they were doing? Did it have a relationship to their lives? How did they connect? Probably not by saying, oh, you know, we have this nice ancient and modern way of doing a lecture, like I've just done. But still they did it. And the doing, I think, has an impact then in how you connect. But also, um, the fact that it is monks and and what you were talking about is that the other part of the inheritance from the Greco-Roman world, of course, is Christianity, Mm -hmm. which is also Mm -hmm. (laughs) bread of the classical world. Mm -hmm. And it's always been that tension between the two great inheritances that has Which made our it's culture... Th- yes, and they're both challenging. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, sort of the, the dialogue and the hostility and the empathy between those different traditions has been so fundamental. Well, it, it has, but I think, I think the classics is going to become, by which I broadly mean things um, to do with the ancient people who spoke Latin and Greek and the ancient Mediterranean, Black Sea and Asian worlds... <laughs> and North African the um, really important thing certainly when sort of receptions I've been most involved with personally have been been in theatre very internationally I mean absolutely over the globe I've been involved in productions in Latin America in Australia um, and uh, even China recently and that's precisely that you've got a set of gods that most people don't believe in and that is so important and allows classics to escape the West and the Christian legacy. And this is unbelievably important. At some point, they, thank heaven, stop belonging to the West, whatever that means. And um, that means that I can go with a Muslim and a Jew and a Hindu and a Confucian and talk about big questions like, you know, why are we here and why is there suffering? And is there an accountable deity? Without actually getting Christian interference, which is what you get when you're trying to produce Shakespeare. So I, I, I believe that it's actually... That is why it's, uh, Hunger Games is set. I mean, mm. it is that this allows her to explore on a purely, really global way huge issues about tyranny well, without mucking it up with contemporary politics. But there are two big differences. I mean, Hunger Games is using a, basically a classical story uh, of uh, a guy who happened to call Seneca, who advises a wicked leader to what he, with the games he can do to keep everybody everybody to go. So it's pure and, and, and the notion of facing your death. So the Hunger Games is a Seneca game kind of model, but you can also use classical um, models which are, um, to subvert, not to, not to replicate the. Um, not just taking a good story and putting it in modern dress, which is what the, sun, what the Hunger Games does, bloody good, but, um, but also to do more what, say, like, you know, 
um, Shane Matheny or Brian feel like the Irish tradition, which is to which is to sort of or um, or Derek Walcott, which is to kind of use the classics to kind of get back at the colonisers, you know, to get back at the power, not using it so, as a model, but using it as a weapon. As a weapon. Can, and both, both of them are... Can, uh, this is such a fascinating conversation. I, I don't want to, uh, to interrupt it. But I, but I think probably people in the audience would like to ask questions uh, as well, uh, too. Um, I mean, actually, we've thought that occurred to me sort of randomly there. There's a wonderful, um, pitiful anecdote of Petrarch when he, get, he's, he's, he's sent a, uh, a copy of... Homer's text, and he writes back to the person that sends it, sends it to him, um, Homerus tuus mutus apud me, your Homer is, is unspeaking in my presence because he can't speak Greek, kind of thing, which is the most rubbish segue in the world to encourage you to, uh, to, to, to speak. Now, uh, some, some ground rules, um, however. Um, we're looking for, for questions, obviously. Um, you need to wait for the microphone which is described in my notes as a roving microphone, but it's probably a microphone attached to a roving person, right? Okay. Um, if, um, but before you ask your question, if you want to give your name and uh, affiliation, that's, that's fine. It is, this is being recorded, as, as, uh, as has been uh, mentioned. If um, you could um, make sure that your question is a question rather than a speech in itself. Be uh, brilliant, um, um, uh, and also maybe just to sort of make things a bit easier, indicate a panelist to whom you feel the question that you're asking is in the first instance most appropriate. Yeah, I've given you so many rules there. I'm not going to get anybody to ask any questions now. But would anybody like to ask a question? Um, just bring it down um, to the front here. Thank you for your talk. My name is Tiki Martel. Uh, the way uh, I see it, if I, if my impression is that the gods served very, very... You talked to Barbara in particular? Yes, yes Barbara sure. and Edith as well. Okay. That the gods served um, a function, a form of catharsis. And also um, we understand ourselves by them in a way. It's like the way nowadays we talk about the royal family. This is my impression. The second thing is, um, you, the person, um, I think you are Peter. Yeah. I'm Peter, yes. Yeah. Uh, the, this is Tom. At the yeah. end, it's Tom. Tom, Tom. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my age. Uh, Tom, and uh, you mentioned something very important. You, uh, my impression is that you said that the, the Greeks and the Romans as well, the empires, they didn't last because they fought and fought and fought. And then I thought maybe this is why the book of the Old Testament survived in a way. For instance, when we want to talk about uh, science, we, we choose the book of Genesis. And when we want to talk about gen Genesis, we use science. Um, and also the poetry, the epic poetry of the Old Testament is recited almost monthly or something like that. Okay, but can we, what, can we, yeah, yeah, very quickly. Very quickly. So what I'm thinking, what is really the timeless? Is that, that hidden, that, that hidden uh, and the myths that really survive more than all the other stuff? A quotation is that the world is suspended on hiddenness. Okay. Would you like to take that one? <laughs> and that's um, how we can confront so let, death. Let, let's think a little bit about the gods and, and politics and the gods as royal family, which is, you know, a metaphor that we can use today, but it was used, for example, in Alexandrian Egypt very much. In fact, 
the fact that they, that Ptolemy married his sister was thought to be okay because Zeus and Hera had done that too, right? So there was a way of, of justifying what went on that directly referred to the gods of Olympus. What I think is very interesting is that the gods were thought to be stronger, more glamorous, more amazing, certainly more powerful than ordinary mortals. But at the same time, there was also a sense that in terms of progress, they were more backward. So the structure of the gods is the family. Um, and Aristotle um, elaborates on this, and he says, well, if you don't need a city, you're either an animal or you're a god. Uh, and the people who need the most, uh, the creatures, as it were, that need the most complex social structures and uh, institutions are human beings whom he defines as political animals, not just in relation to animals, but also in relation to gods. Because gods, as he points out at the beginning of the politics, just need kids and, you know, wives. And, that, and that's it. You know, the family is the most complex they ever get. So there is a sense of progressive weakening from the gods to mortals, but also of institutional progress that is very strong in the Greek tradition. I would just, just say very, very, very quickly that... Um, the a the royal family well no okay what the what the what, what the ancient gods did all the time when they weren't doing anything else was laugh right so they sat on Olympus laughing there's this wonderful logic, this wonderful line about inextinguishable laughter of the gods arises, which proves my point that the people who are ultimately in power get to control what's funny yeah so he the, the group that is in the top. However, it is very, very odd, and probably because they're not really proper monarchies anymore, you know, they're not proper absolute power. Our royal family, I don't think, has much sense of humour. And in response to your your question about the the Old Testament, I think think that it's incredibly telling that for the West, with its joint inheritance of Greco-Roman and and biblical literature, um, to the destruction of, of a city is at the heart of both. So there's the destruction of Troy and the destruction of Jerusalem. And two traditions offer two explanations for that. The explanation that is given by the Bible is that calamitous though the destruction of Jerusalem is, is nevertheless it is the expression of a plan of an all-powerful, all-good God whose purposes are wise and beneficial. Um, the, the Greek explanation for why Troy is destroyed. They're having a laugh. They just want to do it for fun. And so, as a result, it's a much bleaker perspective. Yeah. And I think that that's why, in the modern period, when, um, when people have, have turned their back on the, sort of the Christian notion that necessarily the, the supernatural forces are working in our favour, Freud or Nietzsche have looked back to the classical inheritance. Um, and it's kind of more frightening. Mm. Gods are a, a, such a, an intriguing thing to sort of try and tell students about. I mean, a school kid as well. My, my favourite uh, Roman god is, is the god Janus, who gives us January. Um, and I think what I think is great about Janus is that his essence, the essence of this god, is the door, the concept of the door, you know, the door that you come in, in by, which I think sort of in, in ways, in some tension with what's being said, really sort of defines the gods as the pantheon of gods are terribly practical things things that you kind of negotiate your way around the world with but, 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 but I remember very Roman thing yeah, exactly. but I remember sort of pitching this at a bunch of students in, in London I say what a brilliant idea for a, a god you know the god who is 
of the essence of it all. And I just, of course, met with complete <laughs> 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 lack of understanding. But, but equally, when I, when I think of the financial markets and their power over us, I think of the gods in the mm. end. <laughs> <laughs> another, perhaps another question. Um, at, at the back, on the, on the right-hand side, but wait for the uh, microphone to come to you. A left hand side, sorry. <laughs> Classes, you know. Hi, um, my question's for Edith, and I basically wanted to ask um, do you think political views were, had more of an impact in Greek tragedies or comedies? Because obviously, both of the. the yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute, where they had more impact? Yeah. Um, Okay, I, can, I think I can give you an answer to that. I think at the actual time of performance, so if Aristophanes writes a comedy attacking the politician who's in power today, like Cleon, then it's comedy. However, those comedies that had direct, direct contemporary political references very soon went out of date. So a tragedy like The Antigone, where you see the consequences in a much more abstract and unspecific way because it's set in the far distant sort of Bronze Age mythical past of the worst leader in Greek literature, Creon, making serial mistakes of judgment and (coughs) failing to respect fundamental Greek um, uh, imperatives like the the proper treatment of the dead. Um, Those were played throughout antiquity in form storylines throughout antiquity and indeed, as as we know, it's about to go on in the Barbican, the Antigone um, is still making us think about things. So in terms of uh, what we call the, we classicists, the synchronic plane, which means the horizontal cross-section of today everywhere, it's comedy. In terms of the, you like your long Greek words, don't you, diachronic plane, which means the sort of transhistorical impact, it's tragedy. Thank you very much. Um, uh, other questions? Yes, at the, the front here. Hello there, Richard, Richard Broncalisi. It's wonderfully clear from these, these talks how much we owe to the, to the ancients in comedy and in philosophy and even understanding the two cultures, thanks to, to Peter. But I, my question was about the tension between this idea of the ancients as foundations, as precursors of, of our civilization, and their role which always seemed to me when I studied classics almost more important, as a way into a very alien way of looking at the world, a strange way for us of looking at the world, and that helping us to see different aspects, both of our world and of, of ourselves. And my question really to any of you is, is this role as helping us to think creatively about the world because it's so different, right. as, as important as, as a foundation of our civilization. It's, it's, the, it's the fact that it, sometimes it's the same and sometimes different. It's the only... I mean, if I, people say, why, would you, why do you do this? Why do I now, when I could do other things, do this? The, 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 it's the razor, it's the tightrope that you walk through the ancient world where at one moment it seems suddenly, wow, it's, well, it's exactly, we're exactly like this, it's actually... Mm. And then the, you take one step, just one step, and you're in a completely alien world. And... If I, it, the, 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 the actual visceral <coughs> feeling, the thrill of that, is the single reason why I actually have gone gone back to it. it wasn't it, uh, and and I think it's an important truth about it. Mm. And I, 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 mm, sorry, sorry, Tom, go ahead. Well, I, I think also the fascination of it is that um, 
poetry, for instance, that you read that you may think is absolutely speaking to you in a timeless way, <laughs> you gradually come to realise that's not true at all. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was first... I remember reading Catullus and suddenly getting yeah. it yeah. and thinking, yes, he is articulating exactly how I, a lonely melodramatic, <laughs> <laughs> um, in, uh, in 1980s England. Um, and it was Marshall, I And felt, yes, this is, ex- this is astonishing, this is timeless. But now I realise that Catullus is vastly weirder <laughs> and that the Roman attitude towards sex and love and everything is, is much stranger and more alien than I'd ever ever And also on your, on your back on your slogan, on your motto where we came in it's often translated in other people's slogans, like the Romanian National Defence Force, also a lot of people have the same uh, have the, have the same slogan with the present tense, you know, happy is the man who can understand the causes of things but of course that's not what Virgil wrote, he was actually referring to something not timeless, he was referring to something absolutely specific of someone who, who could and did I'd prefer Birkbeck anyway in Noxe Concilium. Yeah. Sleep on it. It's for a night school, it's just brilliant. On which the most brilliant pieces, I think, of political advice is in Herodotus, of course, Mm. which is the Persians and Herodotus' thoughts for for how you should take a political decision. Um, You should take the decision sober. Then you should get drunk and see what you think about it, or vice versa. And I think that's a brilliant. I'd love to see the House of Parliament do that. Yeah, but then you have to wake up. I mean, I actually do this with my husband. We've always done. It's, it's that you have to get drunk to take the decision, drunk, and then you you wake up and you have your large fried breakfast and groan a lot and your, your cups of English breakfast tea. You then take it again sober, and you only act when you can get both of those. You both. In that little democracy, agree, both drunk and sober. And that stops you just doing things against your gut, which will never work if you do it against your gut. It so will never work. So it's timeless, timeless political lessons from her Exactly. As if we would ever doubt. Were you going to... Well, backtracking a bit, I think both the similarity and difference are important. They are one thing, in a way. I would add the word commitment to this whole thing, because... What you have through the story of foundations is also a vested interest, a commitment of an institutional to look at this stuff with a certain sense of personal investment that Peter had talked about. And that makes a difference because then you can see the difference, but you don't just say, oh, that's alien and, and go away, right? because yeah, it's not just that. No, it, it, it's equally yeah. thrilling when you see something that's familiar to you and when you yeah. discover the Greeks or Romans yeah. doing something yeah. completely bizarre yeah. and completely unfamiliar to you. I but sometimes with. they really got it right, like with goddesses. Did they? Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I was brought up in, in, as, in an austere, yes, Scottish <laughs> Protestant Christian tradition, and um, it, uh, there were no girls for me at all in my religion. And then I discover Artemis, and I'm a convert. <laughs> here, here is a goddess who will look after me as I die, who looked after me as I gave birth, to whom I could take my 13-year-old girls when they achieved fertility, who had festivals for, for women only and represented and was by far the most popular uh, divinity by the 4th century AD. So, you know, sometimes they do a lot better than sure. modern religion. For me, it was... Yeah. Yeah. Sibylle, you want. Yeah. You have to castrate yourself. I know. You want I know. Right, OK, another uh, question. Um, yes, in the red, in the centre of this uh, aisle here. It's very difficult to do this, actually. <laughs> I need to have counted the aisles before I... 
You should have gotten all the names. Yeah, I, what I should have done is put my specs on. <laughs> um, I'm first year classical study student at King's. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, you spoke about um, comedy as a formal institutionalised genre of democracy. But I just wondered if what the relevance was to the discussion of the gods um, in comedy. And you also related it to free speech today. Um, I wondered if you could possibly relate the topic to religious discussion today. Um, yeah, was that clear? Or? Oh, so we're getting down to whether um, you can lampoon the gods that Barbara's talking about, yeah. Zeus and Hera and, and, and Prometheus on our comedy. You, you certainly could. Yeah, um, very, very obscenely. Yeah. Um, I've have got the row I've got into people with over Charlie Hebdo is that I'm actually not at all sure whether you could have a Christian, an image of Christ being published, being uh, in, in as ridiculous ways as as um, as being the case with with Muhammad. Right? I think that we've assumed that you can. And I, I'm not sure at all that there wouldn't be a huge outcry. So I think there's a lot of double standard going on. I'm all for it. All gods, all being beaten with sausages. All the time. <laughs> but I, Personally. I guess, Edith, the question that I, I'm still unclear about is, now suppose that your you know, fantasy mo- moment arrives and that David Cameron is beaten by sausages, <laughs> paid for by ban- bankers, right? That was the vision. So, I mean, let's, let's think we... If we have that, then maybe we oppressed uh, people and so on might think, oh, that's quite fun. But what changes? I mean, the, the real question is, is this a way, is, is this a method of social control so that nothing changes or, and you get a bit of comic relief? Or do we think of laughter as, you know, for example, persuasive uh, and therefore a, a political force, not in, in the conservative sense in which Aristophanes has been read. It would have to be very, very carefully set um. up. Who got, who got to choose Who got to choose what was actually put on? We, we know there was this magistrate in, in, in classical Athens who, who basically got to choose what submissions. But that magistrate was selected completely arbitrarily by lot. Now that is the crucial fact. So he could have been from any class or any political interest group in the whole of the city-state, and he chose what he thought the city-state most needed, but then nobody could win without the people. How it won was the whole of the male citizenry, just the same guys who got to vote, going and making a lot of booing and heckling and shouting noises. So ultimately it came back to... They they then very much influenced the judges with a sort of clapometer. I mean, you couldn't... The judges could not go against... The audience, the judges were also completely democratically selected, not elected randomly from across all four classes. So it was dangerous to counter Edith, but I think you should just anybody <laughs> anybody who thinks this is the uh, the only thing that happened in comedy you've got to remember that uh, Terence, the comedies of Terence, the, um, the great Roman uh, c- comedian uh, from Africa, maybe maybe black, who knows? But anyway, he was basically hired by the richest family at the time, the, 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 the Scipios, in order and paid for by people who were getting votes in Edals in, in in Rome, and that and that before they moved on to Sparta, you know, to to, um, to, to gladiator shows, it wasn't democracy. but they did want votes. They were using comedy in order to help the powerful get votes. Yes. 
We, ha- we have time for one more <laughs> question, I think. And, and I feel that the, the, oh, now I've worked out this is the right and this is the left. The right-hand side of the room hasn't been very well served. So there is something about four lines up. We need to go to the park. Um, this is perhaps to um, Edith, um, Dr. Postler from LSE. Um, is or are writers today just so unaware that they can't produce comedy? Why are there no English comedies in the sense that would challenge the bankers and the financial system? I'm an external examiner in um, in finance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's a very rich and complicated question. I, I, haven't, I haven't got the answer, but I don't think we really live in it. If what I would really call a democracy. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I think that you, it's very difficult to get into Parliament without making all kinds of compromises. With you know, I do not think the, uh, classical Athenians were, repre- uh, were not a representative democracy, a direct democracy, where the citizens got to clap at the comedies and to vote. It's a very different system. I, I am appalled by the banality and bourgeois tameness of most British comedy. It's still more effective in dealing in, in, in um, exposing bankers than anything else. I would it say. Is, yes. I would say to young people, yeah. that the com- I mean, whatever you think of the quality of the comedy, and it doesn't require it to be good comedy to be effective. To be effective, I still think most people's idea of mocking is yeah. particularly true in the United States. Yeah. Um, um, where it is obviously only bulwark against organised exactly. uh, uh, institutional finance and politics is um, is that late you know, late night TV comedy exposure. Some of it's very good. Yeah. Some of it's extremely good. So it may not be as good as, good as you'd like, but I think it's doing something. The best we got. Yeah. There is actually time for another question. I think so. If we could move the microphone to the third row back here. I'm sorry, I'm not doing this very well. <laughs> Hello, um, undergraduate King's College London. I, I have a very general question, so feel free to jump in. Do you think Do you think there's a problem with the term classics in that it only refers to Greek and Roman cultures? Mary Beard, informing us, said that Sanskrit was almost introduced in 1890s at Cambridge Classics course. Had that gone ahead, uh, the field would have been very different. So, do you think it's problematic? I think it it ties in with Edith that. Um, classics is the preserve of the West, so feel free to jump in. Uh, There's also, you know, a, a very strange way of saying the ancient world and meaning Greece and Rome, which I find very, very strange, right? I mean, the world is the world. <laughs> I find that, uh, that strange. Um, and yes, I, I do think there's a problem, and I, and I also think that um, there's so much communication between different ancient languages that there is also a responsibility from classes because we have better institutional mm. support mm. than uh, people studying other ancient cultures to see where the links are and to make sure that, for example, the skills you acquire le- uh, learning Latin and Greek are also skills that you can apply learning other ancient languages and to see the connections. And in fact, in Durham, we do that regularly. I mean, we teach our students also Akkadian. Uh, we see uh, the the... Um, we have modules in the connections between the ancient Near East and the ancient Mediterranean, and you can do in a capillary way the whole of the world, yes, 
that and, way through cultural communication. And, and I think it is improving. There's a new history of the humanities. Some people say the first history of the humanities which begins with Panini and says that Panini, Panini who was a great by systematizer of Sanskrit, the first grammarian, some would, some would say, and, and you can, the notion of the humanities as systematizing um, language as an important starting point for me um, mm. is, is, a, is a basically a, a, a Sanskrit phenomenon that came before everybody else and I think that's more realised now than it would have been or more talked about now than it would have been before. I, I must, I'm awfully sorry for this but I, I must keep to time and we've, we've gone over time which is a sign uh, how, how, how uh, excellent the talk, talks have, have, have been. Um, can I um, well obviously I'll, I'll ask you not quite the, yet uh, to express your thanks to the um, to the panel for this fascinating discussion. Can I uh, also remind everybody that books that have been brandished um, uh, shamelessly books that are available and the, and the panellists will be ha- staying around to sign uh, books as well. But having said that, can I ask you to join me in thanking these uh, wonderful... Uh,